Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting Reimagine Child Care. Investors Bank. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. Here when you need us most, now and always. Summit Health, a provider of primary, specialty, and urgent care. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Johnson & Johnson. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. United Airlines. And by the Adler Aphasia Center. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by CIANJ and Commerce Magazine. I'm Steve Adubato. Welcome to another compelling, important, and relevant program. And we kick off with our longtime and good friend, Micheline Davis, who has a new title. She is the president and CEO of National Medical Fellowships. Good to see you, Micheline. Great to be here, Steve. Tell everyone what the National Medical Fellowships is all about and why it matters now more than ever. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for the question. So National Medical Fellowships is actually one of the first diversity organization in the country's history. Um, uh, it is an organization that really seeks to uh, forward progress the number of black and brown physicians in healthcare. Um, more than that, we are looking to ensure that they're going into healthcare leadership now. It's more important than ever because as we have seen, the structural inequities that lie in this society have really presented um, uh, unique vulnerabilities for our communities. And so what we know, what science has told us, what evidence has, has uh, presented is the fact that healthcare disparities are actually pushed back as a result of having more black and brown physicians, in particular of those of high cultural competence. And so that is why NMF is here, in order to ensure that communities are healthy and well long after tomorrow. But the National Medical Fellowships, the, it's a foundation, correct? Correct. Okay. It provides dollars to whom and for what? So National Medical Fellowships has provided over the last 75 years over $40 million to over 32,000 alumni. So our alumni are individuals who have been in medical school and are from non-traditional backgrounds, meaning those individuals of color who are from underrepresented communities in medicine. Um, and it is the exact reason and uh, why we actually see so many minority physicians right now practicing in medicine, and it is the investment that we need for the future. The impact of COVID, we've had so many conversations over the years, not only about the inequities that you talked about, but social determinants of health, uh, which still remains a core to who you are and what you do every day. How has uh, the COVID epidemic, as we tape on the 20th of July, just before we got in the air, we we're talking about the Delta variant, who knows? Here's the question. To what degree is it impacted, exacerbated, you use whatever word you want to use, um, the work of your foundation? 
Well, I will tell you, it has made it um, more relevant than ever before. You know, we already know about the historical inequities that have really created and what wound up being the perfect storm um, of, of, of society in order for um, COVID-19 to really ravage the most vulnerable uh, communities. However, one of the things that folks are, are missing is the fact that um, of the 3,600 healthcare workers who were wiped out as a result of COVID um, uh, in a report released in April of 2021, two-thirds of them were Black and Brown. So not only are we not as prominently in the profession as we need in order to push back against healthcare disparities prior to the pandemic, but as a result of the pandemic, we literally have lost an entire generation of healthcare clinicians that we had gained. It is exactly the reason why I came to National Medical Fellowships. It is because simply issuing uh, a statement or uh, ensuring that there's a celebration of Juneteenth, well, incredibly important, is not enough. I really had to make certain that I was rolling up my sleeves and, and pushing forward the needle on health equity. And that, my friend, is exactly what National Medical Fellowships has been doing quietly for 75 years. It is time for us to be a hidden figure no more. To what degree can the foundation and the physicians that you are training for today and beyond impact the degree of vaccine resistance that exists right now and moving forward in black and brown communities that is also just as devastating? <laughs> Steve, I love that you asked the question. It's evidence that A, you've done your homework and B, you certainly get it. You know that the hesitancy- Trying to get it, <laughs> trying to get it. <laughs> You get it, my friend. Um, and what's most important, you haven't given up on trying to get it, right? So incredibly important. You know that that hesitancy is actually um, as a result of, of, a, of a variety of things, um, but chief among them has been the earned, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that, right? The well-earned level of high distrust of the medical community from communities of color. That is because of the forced exploitation and experimentation and sterilization of certain groups in society. Chief among them have been Africans displaced in America and utilized, as in the um, study of, of justice and gynecology, um, we know that African women who were enslaved were experimented on time and time again without anesthesia as um, Dr. Marion Sims developed the science of obstetrics and gynecology, and then he went off to, to um, uh, his white counterparts and utilized anesthesia and performed these surgeries in their home after they had been, been perfected on individuals who were intentionally infected oftentimes. We know about Tuskegee. We know about Henrietta Lacks. Um, but most people sometimes forget that many of these issues, many of these, these um, abject sterilization efforts were taking place up to and through the 1970s, right? So it's really keenly important that Sponsored by the government. Sponsored by the government, my friend, and sanctioned by medicine. Let us be clear here, right? We owe an entire segment of society an incredible apology that they have yet to truly receive. And when I say that, I mean not a verbal apology. I mean apology that is reflected in the way in which uh, healthcare is literally developed and, and distributed uh, and present it to them, right? Um, have we, in fact, ensured that we haven't just wrung our hands and said, yeah, that's really bad, we haven't actually achieved health equity, or are we ensuring that every clinical, administrative, and uh, operational decision goes through a racial equity assessment in order to assess whether or not we are reinforcing 
historical structural inequity, historical structural racism. And until that happens, we are going to continue having this. But what evidence has shown us is the fact that we know black babies live longer when they have black doctors, point blank period, right? This is what the studies have said. Don't be mad at me. This is literally what uh, the evidence has, has portrayed, indicating black women live longer. We keep talking about maternal mortality. You know, woe is us, right? And because of the fact that we continue down a path where we haven't actually bettered the outcomes of maternal mortality in this state in the last 30 years. However, what we also know is that evidence has shown us that black women tend to live longer when they have black doctors. So why are we not having more investment in ensuring the pipeline of black doctors? That, my friend, is what NMF actually does. When you talk about the vaccine hesitancy, it causes me to have to talk about our fantastic partnership with the Janssen Department of J&J. Uh, &J Johnson and Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. And with their new announcement of our partnership with Bristol Myers Squibb Foundation, where literally they have um, uh, given us an opportunity with a $100 million grant to really increase cultural competency in clinical trials, but also to community center the voice, right? of that community that we're going to be treating and working with through ensuring that we are including a curriculum that hastens the, the pipeline of uh, physicians, researchers, and investigators of color. This is so incredibly important, my friend, in order to ensure that we are being able to say to the communities who are hesitant that, listen, not only are we taking that into account, but that we've had individuals from your community around the table when we were literally going through the clinical trial and developing the vaccine. Yeah, by the way, diversity um, in those trials is critically important, uh, creating greater public awareness. Micheline Davis has not lost any of the passion, the conviction she has for the work she's doing every day. She's also, uh, we are honored to have her as a trustee of our board at the Caucus Educational Corporation. Hey, Micheline, uh, we'll have many conversations offline and on air. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. I'm Steve Adubato. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. High quality childcare for infants and toddlers is essential for working families, businesses, and the economy. An investment in childcare is an investment in the workforce. We have the opportunity to reimagine childcare by making it more affordable, accessible, and equitable. It's time to build back better. Learn more about the Reimagined Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginedchildcare.org. Hi, I'm Governor Tom Kane. A dear friend of mine had aphasia, which is a language disorder that occurs from a brain injury or a stroke. It robs a person's ability to communicate, but it doesn't affect their intellect. Programs and services offered at the Adler Aphasia Center helped to improve my friend's communication skills, as well as her self-confidence and quality of life. Most importantly, she was among people who understood her. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with aphasia, there is hope. We're honored to be joined by Dr. Lynette Fraga, who is Chief Executive Officer of an organization called Child Care Aware of America. Good to see you, doctor. Hello, nice to be here. Great to see you as well. This is part of our larger Reimagined Child Care Initiative, all about uh, public awareness around affordable, accessible, quality child care. Tell everyone what your organization is as we put the website up. 
Sure. Child Care Aware of America is a national nonprofit membership organization that focuses all of its efforts on ensuring that parents have access to quality, affordable, accessible child care. And we do that through policy change, research, data, practice, wanting to ensure that our early care and education providers and our families are all supported in the best interest of making sure children and communities thrive. Hmm. Doctor, how severely has COVID, as we tape on the 20th of July, I'll be seen later, how severely has COVID impacted the child care industry and more importantly, the children in it and the parents of those children? So firstly, the, thank you again for focusing on this topic. And um, the pandemic has severely challenged the childcare system. Let's be clear, prior to the pandemic, the um, childcare system was certainly at definitely fractured, if not at the breaking point. And through the pandemic, um, because of the challenges um, that we all seen um, globally, uh, it's really created a crisis. Um, and we are really at the breaking point at this point, early care and education providers um, unable to, um, to work, um, programs unable to stay open, the challenges of families having access to care, the expense of ensuring health and safety, all multiplies and exponentially contributes to a real challenge and concerning trends we're seeing even today as we're um, continue to stay in the midst truly in the pandemic. What's the broader impact of that for our nation? Fewfold. Um, firstly, we have been saying since the beginning of the pandemic, no child care, no recovery. Uh, if families don't have access to childcare, they can't go back to work. Um, if um, children don't have quality programs, uh, then they also are suffering in their ability to be able to thrive um, and, and with their readiness for school. So it truly is a significant impact on, um, on our communities, on our employers, on our parents, on families, earning potential. Um, for example, one in five parents have shared that, um, that disruptions in childcare, disruptions in in-person in schooling have either decreased their hours significantly or have um, created the inability for them to actually be able to return to work. Uh, that is severe, not only for the individual parents, but for the families and their ability to be able to support their own, um, their own households. It's, it's really a challenge. But doctor, the impact has not been felt evenly across the board. It's been felt disproportionately. And some people may be tired of hearing about it, but we're not tired of talking about it because it's, it's horrific and it's embarrassing. Talk about it. It is disproportionate. There, again, have been existing disparities, um, not only for um, the ability for families to access care. We're talking about care that is expensive, that, um, that many families are unable to access it. For many families, um, for example, for single parents, it could be upwards of 50% of your income in order to pay for care. Then layer on that, um, that um, early childhood educators themselves only make, for example, $12, $12-ish an hour as a median income nationally. That is hardly a living wage. Then you speak into the fact that there is um, that disproportionately women of color, 40% um, of, of the early care and education workforce are women of color, 
And most of the workforce, of course, are women um, in early care and education. So we are looking at this issue in terms of disparities and inequities, not only as a workforce, but also in terms of access to care. And there are childcare deserts all over the United States where families don't have access to quality care. And that's really excuse Excuse me for interrupting, Doctor. Of is course. it forcing a disproportionate number of women to literally leave the workforce? Yes. So what we've seen in 2020 is 20 is two million women have left have left the workforce. Um, and what we're also seeing is that for women who are leaving the workforce, uh, we may not get back to pre-pandemic levels until 2024, which is much longer than men returning to work. So we're really seeing a disproportionate impact on many levels for women, women of color, for families who have the inability to be able to access care, for the um, unaffordability of care. So there really is a significant challenge multifold across the childcare system. So I want to ask you about the Biden administration and their policies around childcare, the tax credits, uh, early childhood education, et cetera. But, but real quick, compare New Jersey to the rest of the nation as it relates to the childcare um, environment and, and, and situation. So in New Jersey, um, you all are also uh, experiencing challenges in terms of affordability. It does um, it is significantly um, expensive, um, again, upwards of almost 50% for a single parent, 13% of a household income um, for um, a married couple with children. Um, not to mention our really housing costs. Not to mention housing costs. Well, for many across the United States, and New Jersey is no exception, childcare often exceeds the cost of, of rent or mortgage um, for your home. So it really is a significant part of um, household income. And in New Jersey as well, just like in the rest of the United States, there's a real struggle in identifying staff um, for programs to work at um, early care and education programs. So many early care and education providers were not able to keep their jobs through the pandemic. Um, and many of them are not returning um, to our early care and education workforce. And staff shortages are also becoming a real problem. So um, programs, absent staff, uh, staff are what makes the magic happen in childcare. Uh, and so absent staff are really running into a huge problem in terms of access to, to quality programs, notwithstanding the challenges we already have with the expense associated with childcare. Before I let you go, the Biden administration, child, uh, is the child tax credit? Mm -hmm, the child tax credit. What mm -hmm. is it? And again, what is the impact? There, so, so firstly, the child tax credit, um, at, you know, the idea that, um, you know, 50% of children can be pulled out of poverty as a result of um, the child tax credit and dollars going to families with children to really help with the expense is incredibly beneficial um, to families and um, as we're looking at additional proposals that are on the table, um, like the American Jobs Plan, which helps to contribute to um, the facilities and the structures of childcare um, of childcare programs, like lead mitigation, for example, is incredibly important, and that lives within the American Jobs Plan. And it's really important to, again, as I said before, the magic happens with early care and education providers, so we have to pay attention to staff. And that's where the American Families Plan comes in, really paying attention to the early childhood workforce and investing in that workforce for years to come. And there are other congressional bills also out there that can also speak into um, the investment needed for a sustainable changed system of childcare, 
We can't go back pre-pandemic, in fact, because it was already fractured. We want to build a better system as we move forward in service to our children and families so they can thrive. Well said, Dr. Fraga. Listen, we thank you for joining us and being part of our public awareness initiative, public education effort around childcare, um, not just in New Jersey, but across the nation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We'll be right back after this. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. High quality childcare for infants and toddlers is essential for working families, businesses, and the economy. An investment in childcare is an investment in the workforce. We have the opportunity to reimagine childcare by making it more affordable, accessible, and equitable. It's time to build back better. Learn more about the Reimagine Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginechildcare.org. Hi, I'm Governor Tom Kane. A dear friend of mine had aphasia, which is a language disorder that occurs from a brain injury or a stroke. It robs a person's ability to communicate, but it doesn't affect their intellect. Programs and services offered at the Adler Aphasia Center help to improve my friend's communication skills, as well as her self-confidence and quality of life. Most importantly, she was among people who understood her. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with aphasia, there is hope. He's back, yes, by popular demand. It's been a while, but we have him. Dr. Gene Kernaki is president of St. Peter's University in beautiful Jersey City. Good to see you, Gene. Good to see you. Hey, listen, uh, taping the program on the 20th of July. Who the heck knows what's going to happen moving forward? What is the game plan at St. Peter's University September 1? Uh, we are back in full operation as of September 1. In fact, a little bit earlier than that here. Uh, all employees are required to be vaccinated. Uh, all students are required to be vaccinated. Uh, all our facilities will be open. Um, we're ready to go. We're ready to launch. Biggest, I always, I've been asking you about leadership for a decade now. Biggest leadership lesson you've learned in the last 18 months as we do this program is? Expect the unexpected all the time. All the time. Some, all the time. Some things you can plan for, but so many things you just can't. Nobody could have planned for this pandemic. Yeah. So um, let's get into a couple areas. One of the things I keep thinking about is the future of higher education post-COVID, meaning because there were so many disruptions, because it was so hard to plan, as you just said, do you think that higher education, particularly non-public higher education, the independent universities and colleges like yours, do you think that it's, well, you would know, you know the numbers, is it harder to attract students and make the case today? You know, it is harder. In fact, uh, pre-pandemic, we were already under some stressors, right? I mean, there was this whole question about the value of higher education and, you know, um, et cetera. So, but now um, more and more families, financially vulnerable, this is gonna continue for a long time. This is not over yet for them. Uh, they have the impacts of health, poor health as a result of the pandemic that's gonna linger for a long time. So it's put enormous additional stress on families and young people. Uh, so I think we all have concluded that the, the future of higher ed generally is gonna be one of increased stress and, and suffering for lots of schools and institutions. Independent institutions as well will suffer. I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it behooves us to make our case stronger than ever before. 
St. Peter's University, uh, again, you and I have had so many conversations over the years on the air and off about the commitment to uh, minority students, underserved students. It sounds like such a cliche, but it's true, but disproportionately affected by COVID, but disproportionately affected by COVID as it relates to their opportunities in higher education. Fair? Fair. Yes, very fair. And therefore, what has to be done to try, now forget about rectifying it, to, to improve that terrible, uh, those inequities. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much here really to unpack, but I would say one thing that would go a long way would be to uh, increase student financial aid, particularly double the Pell. Uh, that's Do a double, that's double the Pell. Pell grants are federal grants. Federal grants, right? So, yeah, so what we're trying to do is, I'm co-chair of a, a national task force for the Jesuit institutions, to get Congress to double Pell to $13,000 maximum for students. So um, what that would do would be allow students from the lower socioeconomic groups, right? The ones we just talked about to have an opportunity to achieve the education of their choice. Because that's the advantage to Pell. They can take that money wherever they wanna go to find the school, the institution that best serves their individual needs. What's the appetite in Congress for that? You know, I, I think it's growing. Uh, it's going to be a heavy lift, and we may not get it all done in one year. Um, you know, we may we may get a gradual increase over the next few years. But, you know, I do think people are starting to see, you know, we're in a moment. We're discussing nationally the question of equality, right, among the races especially, but equality, justice issues. And this is a key uh, question of uh, equity and justice. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about education itself. I mean, you're a political scientist by background. You've taught, you teach, you love teaching. Uh, I've been on your campus uh, to do guest lectures. I happen to teach at another uh, university, um, and I've done it both in person and remotely. In terms of learning, do you, do you believe that remote learning, as it's currently structured, works to the degree it needs to work, teaches to the degree it needs to teach? I think- I know it's a loaded question, Gene, yeah, but I, it's, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that it can serve some students' purposes well, but probably not the vast majority. Uh, for example, in our own experience, we find many graduate students can prosper uh, with remote learning, or uh, certainly a heavy combination of in-class and remote. But undergraduates, particularly the groups that we serve that we were talking about, the underserved, the vulnerable, they need that one-on-one, -on -one, hand-on, you know, hands-on kind of instruction, the interaction in class. When I was teaching, I remembered some of the most fruitful discussions I had with students were before class started, after class started, going to my next class with them walking alongside or to my office. Those are the interactions that just cannot happen virtually. Yeah, real, real quick. Uh... Not too uh, long ago, the governor announced 28, Governor Murphy announced $28.5 million going to nearly three dozen schools, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, these are, a lot of these are independent uh, universities and colleges. St. Peter's University got 500 grand, 500,000. I'm very grateful for it. Uh, well, you gave I the right answer. More, I'm very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Not that I'm greedy, but thank you, Governor. Is there any, is there any but on that, Dr. Kanaki? Is there any but? No, Thanks. no, no. I, I, I do good. think you're good. We're grateful. We're grateful. Okay.
just to be clear. By the way, you should check out steveautobarro.org and listen to the other university and college presidents offer their perspective on <laughs> public funding of universities and colleges. Hey, Gene, listen. Um, you didn't ask me that question, though. <laughs> oh, oh, what, what other people got. <laughs> I'm going to lay off that one. Eugene <laughs> Kronakia is the, uh, Dr. Eugene Kronakia is the president of St. Peter's University in beautiful Jersey City, uh, New Jersey. Gene, as always, it's been a pleasure. It will not be um, this long again before we have you on talking about a whole range of issues. And uh, we wish you and the family at St. Peter's University all the best. Thank you, Steve. I'm Steve Arvado. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting Reimagine Child Care. Investors Bank. Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. Summit Health. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Johnson & Johnson. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. United Airlines. And by the Adler Aphasia Center. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by CIANJ and Commerce Magazine. Hi, I'm Governor Tom Kane. A dear friend of mine had aphasia, which is a language disorder that occurs from a brain injury or a stroke. It robs a person's ability to communicate, but it doesn't affect their intellect. Programs and services offered at the Adler Aphasia Center help to improve my friend's communication skills, as well as her self-confidence and quality of life. Most importantly, she was among people who understood her. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with aphasia, there is hope. High-quality childcare for infants and toddlers is essential for working families, businesses, and the economy. An investment in childcare is an investment in the workforce. We have the opportunity to reimagine childcare by making it more affordable, accessible, and equitable. It's time to build back better. Learn more about the Reimagine Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginechildcare.org.